1973, five shots ring out from the assassin's gun, killing Colonel Joseph Alon. As he lays dead in his driveway, a few short blocks away, a then 16-year-old Fred Burton sleeps silently in his bed. A world away, Ted Andre's dad, a decorated Mac Sog veteran, hears of his friend's death. Listen in as we find out how these worlds collide. This is a three-part special series of the Protectors Podcast. I'm joined today by Fred Burton and Ted Andre. We're going to be talking about a very important intersection of cultures and countries between the death of Colonel Joseph Alon, as documented in Fred's book, Chasing Shadows, and Ted's father, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Allen Andrades. Let's talk. Ted, Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be back, Jason. Thanks for having us. Fred, world-renowned author, spook, all sorts of cool stuff going on. And I could, you're not really a spook, but you know, you got a lot of really great background. Ted, world-renowned producer, all sorts of good stuff in the entertainment industry industry, and is also award-winning. So, Ted, let's let's hear about you, Ted. What's your background? What's your 30,000 foot overview? 30,000 foot overview. I'm one of the few, if not the only, in the family to pursue the arts rather than going into uh, some aspect of military or law enforcement. So uh, uh, it was an interesting path. And uh, the interesting thing about growing up that way is that gives you a, a sense of discipline that you can apply to entertainment and, and a multitude of other pursuits. And I think that that's absolutely uh, invaluable in, in the course of doing so. And a uh, short story is I, I learned how to play guitar, or I thought I did uh, as a teenager, and was playing backyard parties on the East Coast and got the idea to uh, come out to Los Angeles and pursue that and uh, audition for Ozzy Osbourne's band, which was a lot of fun. And then went from there and, and as kind of a springboard into that uh, sector of the industry and uh, was lucky enough to work with a lot of great people, uh, formed some some good bands. We had some you know, relatively good levels of success. And I, I also did a lot of what's referred to as ghost playing. So I would uh, go into the recording studio between typically midnight and six in the morning and sign an NDA and then go uh, fix tracks as needed uh, for various bands that uh, that were in there. So. A very interesting path and uh, met some some great people along the way. And in the course of doing that, uh, on the set of our second music video, I encountered a director with a great idea about a phone that communicates with the past. So I transitioned then into filmmaking to pursue that uh, concept, which we then did on a shoestring and ended up getting picked up by Showtime, HBO and Netflix, which wasn't too bad for our first time out. And then that was then going into full-time film industry as opposed to uh, the music industry. So that's kind of the brief story. And uh, along the way there, I saw little glimpses of elements of what my father did. I had a couple occasions where, uh, one in particular, where there was a contract that was not honored. And in this one particular case, I I was studying uh, law and finance in college and knew that these contracts should be adhered to. So dad happened to call one afternoon and I said, well, you know, somehow these guys aren't fulfilling their end of the contract. What do I do? And I shared with him some of the details about this particular organization. And within the next uh, three weeks, everything was uh, mysteriously fixed. And uh, I ran into this gentleman uh, a little while longer when I was playing a show at the Roxy out here. Uh, My band was headlining. And uh, he came uh, running over very quickly to see if everything was okay. 
And I had a completely different attitude. And I remember asking my father, you know, what what happened with this gentleman? How did you convince him to uh, uphold his end of the deal and do what was right? And he said, well, don't worry, but I don't think you'll have trouble with him anymore. (laughs) Well, Ted, you know what? We need to pause right there because what the deal is, is your dad was not only a lieutenant colonel, but in Vietnam, he was attached to Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observation Group. Now, if anybody is a Vietnam historian into the soft world special operations forces and everything else, you know, that's Mac V SOG. So that is, uh, the spooky world, quote unquote, spooky world of the Vietnam war, where there's a lot of black ops and open ops going on and a lot of really cool. Well, I shouldn't say cool because it's, you know, life and death, but a lot of really interesting aspects I can imagine of your dad's background in the Intel community and in that. So when you say your dad intersected, he's probably using his years of experience, his, quote, particular set of skills. Yes. That he learned through a a career. You bring up one interesting point. And again, because uh, just briefly, I couldn't ask him a lot what he did growing up. I got used to that at a very young age. And I knew what the term sodium pentothal was somehow by the time I was six. (laughs) But I remember specifically, uh, he came to visit me at one point. We would traditionally go get a steak. We'd go get a, a lunch. We went to Benihana, and Benihana has that sort of hibachi outlay where you've got about uh, eight or nine people around the table. I took a brief restroom break, came back in three minutes or so, and by the time I got back, he knew everyone's first and last name, where they lived, what they did for a living, and was speaking fluent Japanese with the waitress. And that kind of surprised me a bit, and uh, there you go. That's another example of of an unusual skill set and the knack of really getting along with people very quickly. Human intelligence, that's one thing Fred knows immensely. And that's one thing you cannot get by in the intelligence community unless you have, well, I should say, unless you're the spycraft world, if you're in the field, you can't get by without being able to talk to someone. And that brings us into Fred Burton. Fred has an illustrious career within the Department of State counterterrorism. He's written numerous books about it, and he spent time in some in very interesting areas. I love saying interesting is my favorite word when I say Wow. So Fred, let's talk about your seventies. Now we're, we're, we're going back here, you know, we're going to, this whole thing's going to make sense to everybody in a little while, but Ted's father, Vietnam comes back, ends up on the East coast Pentagon area at this same time, same location. Fred enters the world of emergency services, i.e. police in the 1970s. What brought you into the police world? Was this something about your background or how did you get into there to want to put on a badge? That's a great question, Jason. And trust me, my background is nowhere near as interesting as Ted's <laughs> after I listened to that. Uh, but uh, I'm the son of a West Virginia coal miner. My dad literally grew up in a coal camp without uh, running water and went off to World War II. And then after the war, he knew he didn't want to go back to the coal camp. So uh, he went up to Detroit and worked a little bit on the auto lines and then eventually headed back to the Washington, D.C. area where he cobbled cobbled together enough money, Jason and Ted, to uh, buy a business. He bought a local gas station. And I remember uh, we lived in a two-bedroom apartment uh, pretty much right across the street from where the gas station was located uh, throughout the 60s. I'm, I'm old enough to remember when JFK was assassinated, uh, I'm sad to say. But um, 
what happened was uh, in the 70s, Jason, uh, there was an event that took place, which I know we're going to get into. And uh, in uh, the mid-70s, I joined our local rescue squad, which was the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad. Uh, for those of you in the D.C. area, are very familiar with it. It's been around forever. And uh, I kind of got the bug for public safety. And uh, during that time period, uh, most of the volunteers at the rescue squad had full-time jobs, of course. And, and there were a lot of cops, a lot of Montgomery County police, a lot of D.C. DC police, a lot of uh, Montgomery County Fire and Rescue, Fairfax County Fire and Rescue, D.C. Fire, D.C. Ambulance. So uh, I... Uh, I chose to go the law enforcement route uh, and uh, joined the Montgomery County Police first, which, um, you know, many days uh, when I would later become a federal agent, I would look back and, and kind of wish I was back in that patrol car uh, when life was a little bit simpler. So that's pretty much my story uh, as to how I got into public safety. Public safety. And you know what? Speaking of public safety and speaking in 1970s, I cannot believe I did not ask Ted more about this. Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> what was it like meeting the man? Did you actually play with Ozzy? Well, I, it, it's interesting. I auditioned with uh, the drummer and bassist, which was Randy Castillo and Phil Susan, who were uh, among some of the best people I've ever been in a room with. I did not actually meet Ozzy. Uh, at the auditions, we went through uh, a, a lot of the catalog musically, and uh, which was a terrific experience because these are the guys that I, you know, I grew up listening to that and I saw them, you know, play a number of times. So to be in that room, I think, was was uh, tremendously rewarding. And actually just being able to get through that process to me was an accomplishment and being able to tell that story at this point. And it gave me that additional confidence to then go on and, you know, form my own bands. And uh, I understood how to how to navigate the business as well. I had a terrific uh a manager in the form of uh, Tammy Shad. She was my manager. She's uh, coincidentally uh, was Judd Apatow's mother. And uh, her father was Bob Shad, who was also another luminary in the music business. And uh, to bring it full circle, Tammy Shad actually went to high school with my current manager, Rob Heller, who is, uh, has been in the business for many, many years. He, uh, he still manages also uh, Smokey Robinson and Neil Sadaka. So he's a terrific guy who's also been a really good mentor. And so the music industry, I found that music is, is in its own way, a commonality that brings people together. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in that part of the business, but when you have an understanding like that, somehow it's almost like a secret handshake. And I think that having that pedigree in that certainly was a good preparation to then transition into film. And then in general, because music is just kind of not really a specific path, you have to understand how to navigate quickly and that skill also is useful in other disciplines in entertainment, like the film industry, for example, of creating content. Now, Ted, music is kind of like telling a story, either mm -hmm. it's through the words or through music. Your dad, probably what he saw, what I imagine he saw in Vietnam, probably kept him guarded. What was it like growing up with someone who did spend a lot of time in special activities? Well, it's interesting you say that because guarded is certainly a, a good way of putting it. When we would go to school, obviously, uh, and this is primarily in Virginia prior to going overseas, everyone kind of knows what their parents did. It's a standard thing. You know, what does your dad do? I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? Well, he works for the government. He's got an office in the Pentagon, and I don't know any more than that. And, and that was kind of the extent of it. But at the same time, but the times we did share together were, were 
very, very uh, impactful. You know, we did a lot of outdoor stuff together, hiking, uh, you know, things of this nature. But he was gone a lot, to your point. And because he was gone so frequently, you kind of get used to uh, taking advantage of the time when he does get back. But I do know he spent a lot of time in Japan and we had uh, a lot of Israeli friends. I think he went to Israel quite frequently and uh, also Morocco and also Iran. So I believe he knew the Shah. That's a <laughs> wow. Very. I, I wish I could. I really wish I could have met your father. It sounds like a very interesting person and a lo- excellent, incredible background in the military and intelligence community. Oh, and At, one thing to, to this time frame, I didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you there, but in the when he was in Vietnam, he would send back recordings, and I'm still trying to find these, but he would record conversations to us, and my mom would play them back for my sister and I. So uh, this was kind of our way of just getting getting a little bit of insight from dad and, and kind of saying hello virtually, if you will, in the uh, pre-internet days. Oh, I know. When I first went to the war in 0506, we were still sending video, not video, but audio tapes over. So it's, it's interesting how that transcribes that throughout the decades. Now, your dad, did he ever like bring people home? Like, you know, people from work? Did you, yes. did you have to go to like stuff like that? We had a, we had a regular uh, uh, guest list that would come over from time to time. I actually learned how to tend bar at a pretty young age. And I could always tell if they'd had a real big party the night before because it was very chill by the time they got to our place. So I, yeah, I would meet these, uh, these people who were all very, very cool. Um, I remember he took me to his office in the Pentagon at one point, and this was remarkable because there were, again, it was very little at the time, but we went through a multitude of levels of security. And when we finally got into his office in that back area, everything, much like a film, was either flipped over uh, or they had this that top secret stamp actually on the paper. And I remember seeing that as a kid just going, well, this looks like the movies in a way. And uh, there was one area in particular that stood out because the final uh, sort of area of the Pentagon we got to, it resembled a cement tunnel. It was very odd. There were no right angles and it was a rounded kind of a passageway. And that definitely left an impression as well. It was a very interesting place to be in. And Fred, you know, you're growing up in the DC area. You're growing up around all this going on. There's so much spy craft going on in the sixties and seventies with, you know, the, the drop locations and everything else, but, and you're, but you're keeping a view of what's going on around you. What was your childhood like growing up in this area? And you guys are almost around the, the same time frames in this area. Well, it was really kind of an amazing uh, place to grow up, Jason. I know you're in the DC area and Ted lived there too, growing up. You know, you had a very blue collar mixture of neighborhoods with diplomats intermingled with blue collar workers like my father certainly was as a gas station owner next to government employees. My my best friend's dad was a senior CIA official, which I never knew for many, many years. Uh, he actually wore one of the uh, Hoover fedoras too to work every day and drove a, a 68 Camaro, which was pretty cool. Uh, being at the gas station, certainly, you know, cars. And you know, the one thing that really resonates with me from that time frame is, you know, of course, being that close to the district line, Washington, D.C. line, the 68 riots was something that uh, was still fresh in everybody's mind in the late 60s into the 70s. And, you know, and of course, you had the explosion of just uh, rock and roll music and uh, bands and Woodstock and 
And of course, uh, you know, I, I vividly recall the uh, Arab gas embargo and my dad had like a VIP line for uh, all of his Masonic Lodge uh, uh, brothers and any cop or any firefighter that he knew he would whistle and we would move him to the head of the line. And, and actually, I, I don't think I've ever told you this story, Ted, but uh, one of my father's customers was uh, Vice President Spiro Agnew at the time. Really? Before. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, pretty interesting. And Wow. And the Secret Service occasionally would ring down to my dad's gas station and say, hey, can you come up and, and fuel up the old man's car or the wife's car? And, and they would, the mechanics would pick it up and, and gas it up. So, you know, gas in was, what, 20-something cents a gallon. So it was just a different era. And, you know, um, my uncle, uh, my uncle went off to Vietnam. He actually is an interesting fellow. He, he had an appointment uh, for West Point and turned it down. And uh, he enlisted and then somehow made his way to OCS school. And he turned out to be uh, a Green Beret in Vietnam as well. And uh, I'll never forget uh, Jason and Ted. Um, he came home from the war, and I, I don't remember what year this was. It, it had to be the late 60s, and and um, he drank a lot. And my um, my dad, when after the war, he was at Nuremberg, and uh, my uncle was kind of the uh, outcast of the family because of his drinking habit. And my dad took him in. And uh, I remember him living with us in our two-bedroom apartment there on Bradley Boulevard in Bethesda, Maryland. And my dad uh, knew what he had suffered through. And uh, that's just the kind of big heart that my dad had for, for uh, veterans, for people that had been through war and traumatic experiences and, and so forth. And my dad was also a big Audie Murphy fan. Of course, the uh, the legendary soldier, and I still have a couple of his autographed pictures to me lying around here as part of my collection. Cool. I I tell you the the father son intersection and how it's such a it drives who we are and who we become, regardless of what your your relationship is with them. Now, this whole time, you have Lieutenant Colonel. Andradis, and you have 16-year-old Fred Burton, and then you have Colonel Yosef Alan. Your neighbors, Fred, basically right down the road from Colonel Alan. Ted, your dad is friends with Colonel Alan, right? Yes. So what did you know about their friendship, Ted? Well, I do recall the name uh, growing up, and I, and I do know, uh, like, I, like I mentioned earlier, he had a lot of Israeli friends. That was a, a pretty common thing. Um, and when I learned really to, you know, more of the details was, you know, one of my last conversations with Dad when he said, be sure and look into what happened to my buddy Joe Alon. And at the time that he mentioned that to me, I was not aware of, of the murder at that point. I just knew that he said to look into what happened to his friend. And of course, when he gave me those details, I then began to to investigate and get more context to it. And that's what led me to, uh, you know, to join forces with Fred. Now, Fred, on July 1st, 1973, 
you're a 16 year old kid and someone gets murdered, assassinated in your neighborhood. That left a lifelong impression, obviously a lifelong impression that you wrote books about it. You researched it, you investigated, you set yourself on a path. Do you think that was such a big incident that it really put you on a path that you came to, to live this life of human intelligence counter gathering counterterrorism, law enforcement? You know, Jason, uh, it's a very good question. I'm sure the, uh, the DC shrinks would say so. Uh, I just, I just certainly recall, uh, the event, uh, after reading about it in the morning paper, you know, in those days, of course, you don't have the internet, you don't have social media, which I know many of your listeners won't understand. Uh, you had a nightly news broadcast and so forth. So information kind of flew very slowly during that time period. And the, um, oldest daughter of Colonel Alon actually was in high school with me at uh, the Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. And so, you know, it's a small community during that time frame. But, you know, after the murder, um, shortly thereafter in 1975, the murder was in 73. In 75, I joined the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad. And they were actually the first due unit that responded to the uh, shooting of Colonel Alon and actually got there before the cops did. And then uh, I later became a police officer in Montgomery County that investigated the, the homicide. And um, so, you know, I've thought long and hard about the sequence of events, whether it was fate or destiny. I don't, I don't know, Jason, Ted, uh, but, you know, here we are and, 2021, still talking about this case that happened in 1973, which is at times just very surreal for me to still be thinking about this case all these years later. And, you know, Ted, we were talking before the show about the intersection of music and history and all of this going on in the 1970s. Did you want to elaborate on that? Well, I think it's interesting because in that time frame that we're referring to uh, was a kind of an upheaval in terms of pop culture and, and culture in general. And in fact, one of the projects that I'm working on now uh, involves specifically 1971 when the Alice Cooper band relocated from uh, Detroit into a mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut to record Billion Dollar Babies. This is actually all true events. And in the course of looking into that, you see that music in a way kind of drives culture. And the two then in turn sort of shape uh, pop culture and basically kind of like the way that the, the movements of the time were, were going. And so there's this kind of an undercurrent of that. And I distinctly recall to kind of make a, a tie in here with dad as we would ride in the car through through, you know, on the Beltway or through Virginia. And I believe it was WPGC we would put on. So that was the local station. And we would listen to, you know, all the rock music. And then he would play his uh, Johnny Cash music for me, which was a really uh, sort of a pivotal time as a, as a kid, too. I was a big Johnny Cash fan, thanks to that. So music, really big part of our, our whole family. And he would sing a lot in the car, which was always really cool. What did you, did your dad ever say anything about the assassination? He never, you know, at the time, he didn't mention it at all. Um, and I know at the time we were just little kids. And maybe it's the type of thing, too, where you don't want to put that kind of a, a fear into your family and and. 
you know, I think the operations they were involved in, from what I've learned from, from uh, you know, collaborating with Fred here is it's, it's very, very high level operations. And it's not the type of thing you would share with your family for the reasons that we'll, you know, we'll start to uncover as we go through the story here. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't recall uh, him ever mentioning that at the time. I would imagine that there was a lot going on with your father, whether or not directly or indirectly, he knew what was going on in one way or the other. As the same way Fred would find out later on about all the different communities involved with this. This wasn't just a murder in the driveway. This was an assassination. No, and he was a friend because the other thing my father shared with me, you know, in, in our final conversations there was they, they did a lot of stuff together. And I'm guessing that with along with the folks that were coming over to our house at that time, especially in Virginia, he was certainly among those guests. Fred, Ted, thank you so much for telling part one of this story. This is going to be multi-part. It may be three, it may be four, maybe five. I want to flush this story out as much as possible. Because when a foreign diplomat is assassinated on U.S. soil, it sends ripple effects through the community. And now we have Ted Andre, award-winning filmmaker, producer, musician, and Fred Burton, former federal agent and best-selling author, coming together to talk about this. And me, hey, <laughs> the podcaster guy. I'm really looking forward to talking more about this, and we're going to flush this out for as long as it takes. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you, Jason. Jason and Fred. This episode brought to you by Deliver Fund. They are on the front lines fighting human traffickers. Make sure to follow deliverfund.org.